Welcome to UX Soup, a short-form podcast where you can join me, Lisa Cooper, and my colleagues, Chris Schreiner and Derek Vita, as we go beyond the buzzwords and talk about the latest user research, technology innovation, and all things impacting user experience of personal device and services, whether it be at home or on the go. As always, UX Soup is sponsored by Strategy Analytics, a global research and consulting firm providing our clients all over the world with insights, analysis, and expertise. Derek and Chris are out in the wild doing their research, while I have the privilege today to speak with Tom Furness. Tom has been building interfaces between humans and machines for 54 years. He's a professor at the University of Washington and has been innovating in the field of virtual and augmented reality now for decades. He directs various labs, holds 20, over 22 patents, has spun off more than 25 companies working in the AR VR space, and has been called the grandfather of virtual and augmented reality. In recent years, he's been focusing more on how VR and AR can be used to make the world a better place by founding the Virtual World Society. So today we'll be talking about how VR and AR can contribute to our health, well-being and our quality of life, and how Tom's work is contributing in this field. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you, Lisa. Delighted to be here. So tell me a bit more about yourself and how you got involved in virtual and augmented reality research. Well, I guess it began when I was a student at Duke University in North Carolina. I would always was interested in technology and my mother said instead of uh, riding my tricycle, I would be taking it apart and putting it back together again. And uh, not only did I receive my degree in electrical engineering, I was commissioned in the Air Force as an Air Force officer assigned to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is the mecca for an engineer. Yes. So I uh, was able to work on a number of things, including becoming a flight test engineer. I flew in fighter airplanes. I tested uh, equipment and instrumentation in those airplanes. So I went to the sound barrier and pulled G's and, and all that kind of thing. But in the process, realized that this is a really bad interface. Yes. <laughs> the way we're building cockpits. And surely there's a better way to do this. And I decided, well, maybe that's what I ought to be working on. So I turned my attention to working on cockpit design for advanced fighter cockpits in particular. And in the process, realized that we're not going to get there doing things the way we were before. We need a paradigm shift. And that's when I started turning to virtual interfaces, taking some of the ideas that were in head-up displays and things like that and making them helmet-mounted displays and then tracking the head position and things like that. So this evolved over a number of years, 23 years uh, working for Department of Defense and became what we know today as virtual reality. I went out just before I left. Department of Defense, I worked on a project called the Super Cockpit. Super Cockpit is a cockpit that you wear and it pipes information to your eyes, ears, and hands through uh, scanning holographic laser displays and things like that, as well as providing speech input and tactile type displays, gestural interfaces, and things like that. So, I mean, we were building these things, we were testing them, and it was clear that we had discovered something that was a high bandwidth interface to the brain. I mean, it was remarkable the revolution it became in terms of the way we get information into the pilot and out of the pilot to fly these systems. So that's really where it began. Since that time, I've been carrying on doing the research and development and teaching about these things at the University of Washington. When I left the Air Force to form my laboratory at the 
University of Washington in 1989, and then one in Australia and one in New Zealand, and other activities, other private laboratories. And we spun off these 27 companies and generated hundreds of patents and became really the foundation of this industry we know today as virtual reality and augmented wow. reality. That's incredible. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your current mission now and the kinds of problems that you're wanting to solve now through virtual reality and augmented reality. Well, one of the things we've found along the way is the remarkable capability of virtual reality to awaken spatial memory. And this uh, gave us an opportunity to not only put a person into a virtual world, in essence, we were putting a place inside of people by putting people into places. And you sort of never forget a place. Yeah. And that was, could be used for education, for training, especially if you had a situation where you had an expert that could actually go inside your body and could reach out and show you how to do things. So you see virtual hands come out of your body to perform surgical procedures, and then you follow that with your own hands or physical therapy or things like that. The idea of being able to move your mind to another place and be able to interact with other people intimately in that place and connecting with them. So through these things, we certainly have been pioneering work having to do with education and education at pretty much all grades and lifelong learning. In particular, I'm excited about what uh, we've been doing recently with middle schools, where we've had sixth graders, kids that are 11, 12 years old, building virtual worlds to teach other sixth graders about STEM subjects, historical worlds and things like that. So it's a real boon for education. It's a real boon for medicine, for medical training, telemedicine, telepresence, teleportation, all of those kinds of things. So I'm really keen to continue those kinds of things. But at the frontier, one of the things we discovered in the process of doing this is that we aren't even coming close to matching the capability of humans in terms of our sensory capability. For example, one of the projects I'm working on now, funded by the National Science Foundation, is to explore what's going on in the far peripheral retina. This is beyond what you normally see. As a matter of fact, it's what we call perception without awareness. Uh, when we're able to see that actually we have receptors sort of behind our head coming into our eyes, uh, in the, into the retina, and we're able to actually identify things there without even knowing that we're seeing them. And so this connects to parts of the brain that we never thought of before. So that's one of the things I'm exploring. One of my patents is called a virtual retinal display. We were scanning an image directly on the retina of the eye with a, a very low power micro beam lasers. And the performance is outstanding. One of the things we discovered in the process of doing this is people have low vision who can't see, who are blind, could actually see with this device. That's and so uh, this has now gone into another whole area of, of research. Actually, that's a patent that was issued in 1995 expired in, in 2015. So we were way ahead of the game in doing this. And it's a revolutionary display technology that's open to everybody now if they want to make virtual retinal displays. Why has this not been adopted? Because it's pretty far out. It's one of those things where we also had to figure out how to manufacture these devices. And we could do it in the laboratory, but could we make it um, manufacturable? And that's always been one of the, the issues, you know, when you take things from a university laboratory and you try to put them out into a company, you have to go through a process of not only uh, taking the breadboard systems, but translating them into prototypes, production prototypes, and so forth. So that takes a while to do it. But even then, 
there was there were very few applications because there was not the market pull. We didn't have those applications that could be realized with this technology at the time. And so you need to have this tension between technology push, which what I, what I was doing with the virtual retinal display and applications pull. Yeah. Um, even though, for example, in low vision, we knew that it was going to be an application. And again, we received funding after the invention from National Science Foundation to work on low vision applications. So it's, it's, it's quite a toss up in terms of how do you fund this kind of work that is on the frontier, especially if you're trying to build a bridge in order to get it into market. What do you see coming down the pipeline to improve the human-machine interaction between users and VR and AR in the future? One of the things that exists in most um, VR headsets is there really is a disconnect between virgin's cues or the stereographic cues and what we have is accommodative cues. And it turns out now in those devices, that's disconnected. One of the things in my original virtual retinal display was which you saw in 3D with both eyes was put at the proper distance. But that is not in the marketplace yet. But if you build a virtual retinal display the way that I <laughs> said you should do it early on, uh, that would solve that problem. So we're going to solve that kind of problem. I'm actually surprised you say you fix the vergence accommodation conflict. <laughs> in the virtual retinal display. I knew it ahead of time. And it's the biggest problem, isn't it, right now? See, here's the thing. We don't know yet the longitudinal effects of this technology. Yeah, yeah. And we do know that there is a disconnect between our vergence cues and our accommodative cues. And uh, it's there in all the headsets, you know, because what we're doing is we're collimating the display so the pixels are appearing in optical infinity, but we're creating vergence cues where they're not, mm -hmm. where the objects are actually the different distances. Yeah, people can make it work, but what is the long-term effect of it? And that's why maybe the exposures right now with the technology we have is we shouldn't, you know, use them 24 hours a day. I mean, whatever, eight hours a day. Um, we should be using them in short bursts. Yeah, that's short why bursts. I was thinking about that, because if we're looking at children in education, we know that that can affect their development, development of the eyes. It can. It can, and especially early, the early development, uh, where you're talking about kids that are, you know, pretty much like the, the industry standard is 13, mm -hmm. 12, 13, but that's really conservative. Uh, generally, most of that development has happened, you know, by kids that are seven, seven, eight. But still, you don't want to mess around with it, and you want to make sure that uh, you get that right. We can get it right. It's not, it's not rocket science. Well, it was at the time, but it's not now. We just have to have the will to do it. So that's out there for somebody to do. The biggest challenge we have right now is content. You know, so we have these delivery mechanisms, the medium, but we don't really have the message yet to go in the medium. But not e an easy way to build the messages. We're still using CAD tools to create virtual content. And what we need now is uh, new tools to let us author uh, three-dimensional worlds within three-dimensional worlds rather than in two dimensions, which is what we've been doing in the past with CAD type tools. So I think we will have those tools that come along. And then also, I think what we, I see happening is that we'll be using more and more of this technology for therapy. I would like for us to think that as medicine in the past has pretty much been trying to heal people from the outside in, 
we're trying to heal people from the inside out in terms of their mental state and awakening the immune system and what we've seen with the, the pain, for example, and also expanding our sensory capability. Mm. You know, the reason we're not using a lot of our peripheral retina right now is because we aren't using a lot of our peripheral retina mm -hmm. right now, <laughs> because we're looking at screens all the time. We aren't in the situation where we're worried about saber-toothed tigers coming in and eating us. Uh, so uh, we don't, we shut down that part of, uh, even though the receptors are there, we're not paying attention to them. We have all of these sensory capabilities. For example, the largest organ of our body is our skin. And yet uh, we aren't really using that as a medium for uh, introducing information. One of the experiments we did is we looked at what was going on with the eyes. And in a light-proof chamber, we measured the light that comes out of the eyes. It turns out not only do you have light that goes into the eyes, which you'd expect, but actually there's light that's emitted by the eyes. Now, what does that mean? What's that all about? And uh, what are the characteristics of it? How does it correlate, if at all, with cognitive processes and things like that? It may be another portal into the brain and brain functioning. But I'm interested now in, in pushing the frontiers in consciousness and then uh, understanding these kinds of things that relate to the, the environmental stimuli that we receive, either from the real world or from uh, virtual worlds. We can expand our sensory capabilities so we go beyond what we have right now. We can see in the dark, see at night. We can hear subsonic sound, ultra, ultrasound, all these kinds of things with this ability to still use our sensory capability, but we do a little modification of those signals coming in ahead of time. So I imagine that you can learn a lot from the animal kingdom. Absolutely. We are, are keen to understand everything we can about the way um, other species see, touch, hear, things like that. And it, it turns out that shrimp have this amazing spectral capability in taking the real world and the and dividing it into maybe 17 different spectrums. They have this amazing visual capability. But we want to understand, for example, how we can extend our own sensory capability by using this instrumentation where we take the things out of normally out of the spectrum that we were hearing sound or vision, and then we move them into the spectrum that we can see. And so we make this better coupling of what's going on in the world and can perceive it more completely. One of the interesting projects we're doing right now at the University of Washington is actually investigating octopuses, living octopuses, trying to understand how they, they work. But the challenge that we're trying to do there is actually communicate with octopuses. Now, octopuses are, are really bright. I mean, they, are, they have a, a, the intelligence, about the intelligence of a dog, about a one and a half year old, a two year old child. So we think there is a way that we can communicate with them by understanding octopus life. So we've been studying the octopuses, but we're also want to become an octopus. And the way we feel that we would communicate is by turning ourselves into an octopus. So we've built these virtual octopuses uh, that we will inhabit using virtual reality tools. We'll look through the octopus, a virtual octopus eyes We'll work with the arms of the octopus, moving them around. And then we will actually be in a virtual world that's actually surrounding in a cave type structure around living octopus. And the idea is for us to 
try to speak octopus language in the way that they do things. It's an attempt to communicate with another species that is as about as alien as you can get on the earth. That's amazing. I imagine that has applications or use cases for climate change and trying to understand the ecosystem and the animals around us. And also rehabilitation medicine. It turns out this is a way we can map humans through processes to be able to do things that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. For example, just having a human operate eight arms when you only have two arms. (laughs) Yeah. And so that kind of mapping is a way for us to understand ways that we actually activate our limb function, our movement or whatever, and then um, map that into another device that acts for us. So that's one of the ways that we can look at how other species work and try to understand that and, and use it. Wow, it's fascinating. <laughs> so tell me more about the Virtual World Society and the kinds of projects you're working on there. Well, one of the things that, uh, that I've been concerned about for a number of years is relying on the industry to uh, provide content that was uplifting and edifying. And of course, we don't get that. What we get is just a continuation of what we've seen with computer games, largely games of violence. You keep score by how many people you kill or how many zombies you kill or how many, uh, you know, Grand Theft Auto and things like that. Certainly there are some good things out there, but it's dominated by basically entertaining ourselves by destroying or by violence and knowing the power of this technology. I mean, it's like we're splitting the atom, unleashing enormous power. It's like writing on the brain with permanent ink. When we put a person in a virtual world, we have to be conscientious and sensitive to the fact that we are leaving images there that will never go away. And so because of that, and because of the power of this technology for education and training and design and all those, um, those areas that can benefit society, I felt that we needed to concentrate on the humanitarian applications of this as quickly as possible so as to show people this is what it can do. And so the Virtual World Society was founded on this principle of basically being the conscience or the heartbeat of virtual reality and augmented reality. That what we wanted to do is not only use the technology to unlock minds and link hearts, but to do all of that, address some of the pervasive problems we have in our world today. And so we, we feel that it's all there. The powers there, the people are there as long as they are able to understand the problem and work together to solve the problem. And this unlocking and linking can happen through this amazing technology. So one of the, uh, the projects that we're working on right now, uh, we, we, well, several projects, I mentioned the middle school project where we have the, the kids that are building virtual worlds. Uh, we also have a project called the Make-A-Wish Foundation. This is for kids who are, are terminally ill and they have a one wish they wanna make. And we're helping those children make their wish and go into virtual worlds where they can achieve what they want to do as, as their wish. In addition to that, we're working on a new project, our moonshot called the Learning Living Room. The whole idea is that really the classroom we've always had is really the home. This is where the action takes place. Mm-hmm. This is where imagination gets stoked. This is where creativity begins. And what happens when, when children go on to school, something happens. 
Mm -hmm. uh, what happens is generally those creativity, that, that imagination sort of gets squelched somehow. Yeah. Um, just because it's an institution and because all the kids don't get a chance to grow the way that's natural for them to grow with their imagination. What we want to do is keep imagination alive and make the home a center of learning for people around the world. And to do that by the not only the delivery and access to this new technology, but worlds for them to go in and explore and adventure as families are flying a starship into another galaxy and sending out probes to find out what really it takes to sustain life and then going and landing on those planets and, and, and exploring as a family and piloting this starship or health and well-being modules, other adventure modules, going to Machu Picchu with your grandmother who's on the other side of the world and things like that that will basically make a home this amazing lifelong transgenerational uh, learning environment. That's not being addressed now. Schools are being addressed, mm -hmm. higher education addressed, companies addressed, but nobody is looking at the home of how this will systematically be used. So we want to really become the Peace Corps of VR. We want to get the technology out there in the field in homes where it can make the big difference, along with these worlds, mentorship, connecting to other families and projects to work on. And so that's the plan for the Virtual World Society. And we already have a track record. We have an amazing, we have 1,500 members that are eager and keen to be developing these virtual worlds. And that project is underway. That's wonderful. How can people find out more about or become involved in the Virtual World Society? Well, we love to have people involved. And the best thing to do is just go check out our website. It's virtualworldsociety.org. And so if you, uh, if you Google that, uh, you'll find our, our website and you can join, become a member, it's free, and then decide how you want to participate as a volunteer. Certainly you can provide donations. We are a charity, a 501c3. And so it's open. We have people that are ambassadors, ones that are actually helping with uh, recruiting members, ones that are working on projects, uh, developing uh, uh, new worlds and uh, new technology. There's a whole lot of fun stuff there for everyone. It's interesting that a lot of the people we have joining are professionals who would rather do this in their jobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, they're on fire, you know, and they have this feeling that they want to make a contribution and they realize the power of the technology. And it solves a lot of classical UX problems of getting bandwidth to and from the brain. And so I spent all these years designing fighter cockpits and I really know what it need, you need to do to get bandwidth to and from the brain, and, and especially complexity, teaching complexity. Mm -hmm. And it's remarkable, even what children can do if given the proper interface. That's amazing. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Tom, I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today, and I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing um, to improve the lives of people everywhere using technology for good. So thank you. Thank you, Lisa. It's been fun. A reminder that UX Soup is presented as always by Strachy Analytics. Check out our latest user-focused insights at sa-ux.com. And please remember to subscribe, like, or review UX Soup on your favorite podcasting platform or by visiting our show page at ux-soup.com. 
You can always visit the show page too to follow myself, Chris or Derek on LinkedIn or Twitter. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.